When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Not today. Today, we are definitely talking about divisions. We're talking about divisions because we're talking about racism and hate. And actually, sometimes the way that racism isn't about hate, it is just racism. Hate springs from racism, I think, not really the other way around. Racism is a system. Hate is an emotion. They're both damaging. And we're going to talk about both from kind of different angles, but they intersect. The second part of the show, I'm going to talk to Ibram X. Kendi. He's the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist and was also the author of Stamped from the Beginning, a National Book Award winner. He notes on his website he was the youngest ever winner of the National Book Award. But up first is Arjun Singh Sethi. Arjun Singh Sethi is a community activist, human rights lawyer, and law professor based out of D.C. He's the editor of American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, an NPR Best Book of 2018. Coming right up. Hi, Arjun. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Anna Marie. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, we we talked about having you on the show in the immediate aftermath of the El Paso shooting uh, and in the Dayton shooting because it was the anniversary, very close to the anniversary of the massacre at the Sikh temple in Wisconsin, right? Absolutely. And then also the anniversary or close to the anniversary of the publication of your book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. And obviously, it didn't quite work. We didn't get you that week. And we kind of been juggling some things. And I, I did have a thought to myself, it's not like this is going to be something that doesn't need to be talked about. But it turns out, as I was looking at the news today, not only is this relevant in a general way, not only is talking to you about hate crime and, and hate uh, violence stemming from white supremacy, it's, it's very specifically in the news, uh, six people have been arrested since El Paso for plans to commit mass violence. And four of them were explicitly talking about white nationalism in their plans. One of them quoted Trump in a post. And one of them was one of the very fine people who showed up in Charlottesville. And then just this morning, I saw a story about children on a bus going to Head Start programs in Idaho, that the managers of the program are having to take the signs that identify the bus as a Head Start program for migrants off of the bus because other drivers on the road were harassing the children. I know that this stuff was happening before we had it in the news all the time. Right? I mean, it is weird. Is this, is it really, are we just noticing it? Is it worse? Like, I, I have trouble kind of making sense of that because 
one of these people quoting Trump seems like, oh, this is new and and bad and worse. But I also read your book. (laughs) So it seems like a continuum as well. So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think hate has braided through the everyday lives of vulnerable communities in this country for a very long time. There is no question that when Trump announced his candidacy for president of the United States on through the election and inauguration, there was an absolute uptick in hate violence. Now, many people weren't talking about it then the way they are now. Um, And so I do think that is progress. I think it's progress that people are even using language like white nationalism, white supremacy, anti-blackness more regularly in ways that they weren't just a couple of years ago. I also think if we look back just historically, hate violence often spikes during election cycles because there is so much Mm -hmm. political targeting of different vulnerable communities, whether it's Latinx folks, immigrants, Muslims. And so one of the messages that I have been conveying to the vulnerable communities with whom I work is that they have to be absolutely doubly prepared because I fear that there are going to be more incidents, more attacks, more episodes of hate violence as the political cycle kicks into full gear. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about that, that technically we're not actually even in an election cycle right now. Yeah. I mean, yes, the primaries are happening for the Democrats, but what what's happened in our politics is having this effect on everyday lives in many ways, not just that we all are inundated with political argument and talk and we all have become spin doctors and consultants. It's that uh, this is happening. Uh, the the language is getting ramped up, the the rhetoric is getting ramped up, and that's having an effect on vulnerable communities. It seems like there's not really even a break from that. Like, there's no such thing as in-between election cycles, I would say. I think that's a fair point. And again, it has been an absolute constant ever since Trump took office. And, you know, one of the messages I tried to convey after El Paso, you know, on social media channels is that we should be absolutely shaken by what happened in El Paso. Mm-hmm. We should absolutely be uh, terrified by the fact that these, you know, uh, men were just arrested, you know, four of whom espoused uh, white supremacy, one of whom was quoting Trump, one of whom was at Charlottesville. But we shouldn't be surprised because, again, vulnerable communities um, and, and, and there are survivors of hate violence across the country who have been saying for a long time, We need more resources. We need the government to more effectively tackle hate violence. We need to take guns off the streets. Um, And so they have been making those recommendations and they have been struggling with these ugly forces, whether it's anti-blackness, white supremacy, Islamophobia, transphobia. um, And just unfortunately, a lot of people haven't been paying attention. You know, one of the other things I think that is interesting, and it dovetails off the point that you made, is that, you know, Donald Trump is different in a lot of ways. But one way in which he's also different is that he has these rallies, and these rallies are basically Mm. hate fests, right? The Washington Post did a study, and they actually found that hate crimes surged after Donald Trump held rallies in American cities. 
right? And so when he has these rallies and they're broadcast on Fox News and CNN covers them and people are wearing MAGA hats and he's goading people on to, you know, target, you know, Muslim representatives uh, uh, in Congress, goading them to, ta- uh, you know, to target Latinx folks, spreading total falsehoods, um, it's going to have a ripple effect. The story about drivers in Idaho harassing migrant children, who, by the way, a Head Start program is is about five years old, so they're harassing five-year-olds. Now, it's all horrible. Any kind of, you know, uh, violence or or even verbal violence motivated by bigotry is horrible, but the idea, these are five-year-olds. <laughs> and, and in the article, what the manager of the Head Start program said, that he, he suspected that the reason why these children were being harassed is that the drivers assumed that they were not legal immigrants. And this is maybe just a small point, but you can trace that assumption directly to the president, right? Because he... He's made clear that he believes that our immigration system is is fundamentally like being gamed by immigrants, right? That it's like that there's no such thing really as a legal immigrant somehow. That everyone who comes in asking for asylum is actually here for nefarious reasons. So I feel like you can, there is not it's not even like a a chain of events or a chain of language that links him to this violence. I mean, like. It's it's just a it's a direct cause and effect. It and I'm sorry I just I feel like I'm getting I'm out of breath. <laughs> I'm like getting really excited. But I also want to come back to say that if you were surprised by these things, it is true you probably haven't been paying attention. And also a point that you've made that I think is really important is that we tend to be shocked by these things as white people. I'll center it on 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 what I think is going on with us. And we get really interested in what I actually maybe just did, which is we really get interested in the people committing the violence, right? Right. And I know that one of the messages that you have is that let's also at least, maybe even first, think about the survivors. I mean, absolutely. One of the reasons that I wrote the book American Hate Survivors Speak Out was Every time I turned on the television and almost every time I listened to the radio and I read an article, it was another account profiling a white supremacist or understanding why the white supremacist movement is so organized and well-resourced and how they connect online. And, and, And some of that research is important, but there were almost no platforms for survivors of hate violence to tell their story. You know, one of the the stories I like to share is You know, the day that Donald Trump signed the Muslim ban into law in January 2017, a mosque in Victoria, Texas, was burned to the ground that same night. When I went to Victoria to meet with the Muslim community there, whose mosque had been burned to the ground, this was now in, you know, May of 2017, they told me that not a single national reporter had been down there to see them. And so, I mean, even just recently, right? I know Jake Tapper and and, and he got into to a lot of hot water as he should have for being yet another person to give uh, Richard Spencer a platform. Steve Bannon makes appearances on CNBC all the time. I think at one point, The New Yorker at their Festival of Ideas was inviting or had invited um, Steve Bannon. And then there was, an, there was sort of a, 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 a backlash and they rescinded the invitation. I believe that, you know, Steve Bannon or, or, or somebody sort of of that kin um, 
was featured in sort of the Economist Annual Conference. And so um, I do think that we need to give survivors an opportunity to tell their stories. Um, A, because a lot of survivors want to share. B, if we want to take on white supremacy, we need to center those who are most impacted. We need to center those who are actually rebuilding in this moment, those who are most acutely impacted. Um, And they have really a lot of the solutions we so desperately seek. Um, And I continue to be frustrated um, at sort of mainstream media's um, refusal and inability, um, laziness, ignorance. I mean, I think it's probably a confluence of all those things um, to just refuse to give survivors of hate violence the platform they deserve. And I'll go ahead and name it. It's also racism. Yeah, sure. (laughs) No, absolutely. And and it is racism even if we're not conscious of it. In fact, that's kind of how racism works. Uh, And and I see it in myself. I I sort of tried to call myself out on it a a second ago when I was trying to – when I was really getting excited about the links between Trump and and this white nationalist uh, hate crimes because – in some ways, there's no mystery there. We don't need to talk about that even, right? That's just, we live in a racist society. We live in a society that implicitly condones violence against people of color, that commits violence against people of color all the time. There is, it is, it is as mysterious as gravity that this happens. What we need to investigate is the stories that people have about surviving it. And about resisting it. Like, that's the thing that, like, I, as a white person, probably can't get my head around real easily. Yeah, and, 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 and how hate violence impacts them, how it impacts their communities, how it affects their decisions they make, how it affects um, uh, their daily lives, how they rebuild, the additional resources they need. Um, what do they need looking ahead, knowing that notwithstanding the fact that, yeah, it seems like we are constantly living in sort of never-ending, uh, a, a, a sort of ubiquitous election cycle, that hate will very likely still spike, you know, between now and November of 2020. And I fear that not enough people are speaking to them. And I'm trying to do that work, and community organizations um, do this work every day, but often they don't have the resources they need, and often they, too, aren't featured on television. You know, at some point, you know, just in this podcast, you know, you talked about how we live in this world where, you know, there are all these consultants and experts. Sometimes I like to call it the punditocracy. And I will tell you, you know, in addition to survivors, there are many folks from impacted communities who may not be directly acutely impacted by an act of hate violence. Their community is impacted. But again, they work on these issues every day, right? They're experts in white supremacy. They too can speak to what survivors need. They too can speak to what some of our policy options are. And they rarely are given a platform. And I can tell you, even after El Paso, there were a lot of folks in the Latinx community who were upset. Because they felt like they weren't given a floor to actually talk about the connection between what's happening at the border, Donald Trump separating and caging immigrant families, and the fact that this guy decided to drive, you know, hundreds of miles to literally, you know, murder Latinx people at a Walmart. And they should have been given the opportunity to tell that story and make those connections and talk about the resources they commun- their communities need. And in many cases, they weren't. And it's not just—I I mean, I think it's important to realize it's not just the sort of obvious— 
connections between what's happening at the border and Trump and this violence. Like there's everyday bigotry. There's everyday racism that affects Latinx people. That is the reason why I would say people on the right think they can get away with. What am I saying? They get away with the policies that they do because well-meaning white people don't elevate the conversation and complain and protest and give our resources to sometimes the more subtle crimes, not crimes necessarily. I guess they're they're crimes of a sort, um, but to the more subtle ways that people of color experience systemic, you know, racism and brutality. You know, let me give you uh, let me give you an example, right? If I can. So this is somebody in my community. Okay, this is somebody um, in my. She's she's sort of an elder, um, and so in our community we call you know the elders, you know, uncles and aunties. And so this is an auntie that I've known for decades since I was a little child. And she lives 10 minutes, five minutes from my parents. And she recounted to my mom how recently she had left a giant. I don't know if giant is a nation national brand, but it's a big grocery store here on the East Coast. And she had taken her cart to her car to unpack her groceries. She then starts taking the cart back to sort of the store, right? Because you don't want to leave it on the street. At which point a guy looks at her and says, huh, you weren't going to take that grocery cart back um, uh, unless you saw me doing it. That's what all you people do. You just sit here and take advantage of us, and you don't know the rules, and you don't play by the rules. And she's lived here for decades, and she was stunned that this was happening at a giant, right? And so there are stories like Mm -hmm. this happening every single day. Um, These incidents of bullying, these incidents of hate. Um, Obviously, you have hate speech that proliferates online. There are armed protesters who exercise their right to carry guns um, and their right to exercise free speech outside mosques. And so young Muslims have to walk by gun-toting white supremacists saying nasty things about Islam. That's unfortunately legal. And so Hate, again, really braids through our lives, and it's just it's an everyday reality for us. And sometimes it's lawful. Um, sometimes it's a hate crime. Sometimes it's, you know, a hate crime that's, a, that's an act of mass violence. And I do think that sometimes we do ourselves a disservice just by focusing on the most egregious atrocities. Um, we do need to spend more time thinking about, again, the everyday ways in which um, we continue to be targeted, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the streets, whether it's our schools. Children. I mean, you brought up the, the the idea of these young kids on a bus. I mean, you know, bullying has experienced something like a three hundred percent uptick um, since Donald Trump took office. I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a report um, after the election. They literally found that that's not like a large number of of, of bullying incidents. Um, uh, where the actual uh, person who was doing the bullying was specifically mentioning Donald Trump, his rhetoric or his policies. <sighs> I have a nervous habit of kind of laughing when I'm overwhelmed. I I want to emphasize that I'm not laughing, laughing when I do that. Um, Because this is overwhelming. And I can only imagine, and I'm just getting a taste of it, right? Um, The strength that's in these communities, in your communities. I also really want to emphasize that. Something a friend of mine who's a person of color once said is that he didn't think white people could handle handle it if they weren't white. And I think there's something to that, I have to say, <laughs> that we just haven't had to go through the things that the people who aren't centered have had to go through. 
And so I want to just really recognize the resiliency that you're talking about. Absolutely. You know, and one of the, and I know we spoke about this the last time I was on air with you. Um, the thing that surprised me most about my travels across the country in 2017 when I wrote the book, um, I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went to Victoria, Texas, Whitefish, Montana, um, you know, just really all over the country was the resilience of survivors. Every survivor that I spoke to is figuring out ways to push back. The mosque in Victoria, Texas has been rebuilt and they continue to have potluck dinners that are open to the public. Um, the same potluck dinners they had before their mosque was burned to the ground. Uh, Victoria Jabara in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, whose brother was murdered in a vicious hate crime by a white supremacist who was known to police, um, ended up uh, helping um, a school library dedicate um, itself in the name of College Jabara. And so it's now called the Takun Olam College Jabara Memorial Library. The last event I did in 2018 was actually a reading to young people at that library. Um, Taylor Dumpson was the first African-American woman to ever be elected student body president at American University, Washington, D.C., six miles from the White House. The day that Taylor takes office in April 2017, nooses are found hanging across campus. Um, Taylor struggled. They all struggle. But Taylor is now um, a, a renowned advocate um, on issues like uh, 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 mental health, on issues like um, uh, uh, collective community and, 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 and community mobilization. Um, and in fact, she even sued um, the Daily Stormer um, and recently won a huge um, six-figure monetary judgment, as did Tanya Gersh, another person from Whitefish, Montana, who I profile in my book. And so folks are using courts. Um, they're, they're, they're using uh, a civil society. Um, they're building community amongst themselves. Um, and they are pushing back because I think it is often sort of within the human spirit to do so, but also because people aren't often looking out for them, right? I mean, mm -hmm. going back to where we started— you know, a lot of survivors of hate violence in some ways just feel forgotten or they feel exploited, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the media might be interested for a day or two, but then the world moves on, right? We've almost become desensitized to it, normalized to it, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of consistent interest in understanding, okay, what is it that they've been to? What are their ongoing needs? What are the ongoing resources that they may need? And so they have no choice but to sort of, you know, rebuild, um, and I think, again, that's a testament to their character, but I think it's also a sad reflection um, of, of, of where we are, that a lot of this work is doing is being done by affected communities um, alone and, and not in concert with elected representatives, not in concert with Congress, um, sometimes not even in concert with white allies. You probably know you should be taking vitamins to help supplement your diet. But with so many options, how do you know which nutrients you need and which ones you're probably already getting enough from, from your diet? That is why you need Ritual. Women deserve a clean, effective multivitamin they can trust. When Kat Schneider realized that this didn't exist, she decided to create her own and founded Ritual. Ritual is the obsessively researched multivitamin designed for women by women. Ritual contains nine nutrients that are difficult to get enough of, even from a healthy diet. And now, instead of taking a handful of five or eight vitamins to get those nutrients, Ritual makes it easy with just two capsules a day. 
Order online at Ritual.com, and for around $1 a day, Ritual is delivered to your door monthly, so you can stay on track with your new healthy habit. I have spoken before about what I love about Ritual, but I shall repeat myself, which is one, they look cool. They're little see-through tablets that kind of like the little grains inside them float around. They're golden. They also smell delicious. They are minty fresh. I am a big believer in making the things that you have to do as pleasurable as possible. And Ritual makes vitamin taking that way. Also, you can take them on an empty stomach. I don't know about you guys, but I have to do all of the pill taking first thing in the morning or else I will forget. But I don't forget with Ritual. They do have that no nausea design. Ritual searched around the globe for the best suppliers and is transparent about where they source their ingredients. If you want to know more, you can find everything you need to know on the website. They are easy, all-in-one, everything I want. That is why Ritual is the multivitamin I choose. Try Ritual today. You will get an exclusive offer for 10% off for your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. So let's let's talk about some well-meaning white people then, because um, you have mentioned resources and policies. What are things that if someone wants to actively be a part of a movement against hate crimes, what are the things that someone can do? So I think there's a lot. Um, First of all, just making sure that survivors have the resources they need, right? I met survivors who didn't have access to health care, who couldn't afford, um, you know, emotional and mental health support. Um, Supporting community organizations who are on the front lines every day supporting survivors. How would you find those? And I'm just going to, I'm going to make you real, I just, I I know people are going to want to like click on something while they're hearing this. Yeah. So So let's, where would they find these things? So, I mean, if you're in a city, right, you could literally look and say, I mean, Google in that sense is a wonderful tool. And you could probably find out if you were to spend five to seven minutes online, who are some of the groups in my city who do community work um, who support these uh, uh, these vulnerable folks, right? In some cases, there are national groups, right? United We Dream has done really extraordinary work. Um, you know, Project South is based in Atlanta. Um, they do extraordinary work. Um, in D.C., uh, there's the Muslim Justice Collective. They do extraordinary work. In San Diego, there's PANA. Um, in Portland, there is um, CARE. The CARE has lots of chapters across the country. Council for American Islamic Relations. And so, Folks can actually figure out um, if they do a little bit of work. Or guess what? You know, email somebody you know and say, hey, listen, I would like to support this community <laughs> organization. I'd like to get involved, right? When you want to help and you want to be committed, yeah. sometimes you got to do a little bit of work, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think one can support those community organizations. And I said in the, you know, in the acknowledgments of the book, this book required a community. Um, people, you know, connected me to survivors, drove me on unfamiliar roads, um, you know, and even let me stay at their homes. And long after the public and media loses interest, community organizations do this work every day. Um, Gun control, right? And so here's the thing. Hate is that much more likely to become hate violence if guns are accessible. And so survivors and community organizations are increasingly really rallying around meaningful gun control. Uh, Better data. Right. And so the college bar. So the FBI releases an annual report on hate crimes every year. And we recently learned 
that the murders of Khalid Jabara, right, he's from Tulsa, Oklahoma, murdered in 2016, and Heather Heyer, who I'm sure almost everyone listening knows, Heather Heyer was the young woman uh, murdered in Charlottesville at the United Young the White right Rally. Woman. Exactly. Neither of their Not deaths— Not that that's—again, that I only draw attention to that because that is the name, that there may be connection, right? There just might be a connection between everyone knowing that name and the fact yeah, that she was white. Exactly, right? Absolutely. Um, and for folks who want to dig into that deeper, li- literally there's a sociological phenomenon called missing white girl syndrome, right? Where people have actually studied the fact that some of the most um, uh, uh, draconian policies are actually passed after a white girl goes missing. So three strikes— was actually passed after Polly Class went missing and, you know, was, was, was ultimately murdered um, in California. And so that's actually what the phenomenon t- to some degree is called. Um, but the murders of College Bar and Heather Heyer weren't even reflected in the FBI's annual hate crime report. It was as though they never existed. It was as though they never took place. And that's mm-hmm. because the FBI releases their annual report every year, but it relies on voluntary reporting by police. It's not mandatory. Right. And so the FBI says something like there's 7,500 hate crimes that were committed in the year 2017. That's what the 2008 rep- 2018 report said, because it looks back a year. The true number of hate crimes is closer to 250,000. We know that because it's a self-reporting mechanism called the National Crime Victimization Survey, which documents this. And so there is a new bill that's pending in Congress, and it was introduced in Congress, called the Jabara Hire No Hate Act. Um, and that bill would specifically um, uh, mandate uh, uh, a better reporting, hate crime reporting, so we can see who's being tracked, where, and by whom. And there's a deeper point here, right? I also work on issues of policing and surveillance. And one of the things that frustrates me so much about this is, you know, when you go back to these police departments and you say, how could it be that you reported zero hate crimes? How could it be that you didn't include the murder of Heather Heyer? They say, oh, we struggle with technology or it's antiquated and the system isn't you know, quite up to par. And yet, these same police departments love using technology to monitor us, to surveil us, whether it's predictive policing, whether it's CCTVs, whether it's stingrays, whether it's license plate readers. So clearly, they can use technology to monitor, to track, and to arrest us, but they refuse to use technology to help and protect us. Um, And so encourage, uh, you know, your representatives to pass the No Hate Act. And guess what? Oversight can happen locally too, right? I've done events across the country and folks in the aftermath aftermath of that event, including in places like San Diego and Santa Fe, went to their city councils and said, listen, we need you to make sure that our local police departments are actually tracking this so that, again, we have better data. Um, You know, one of the other things, and, you know, there's been a lot of calls for how we need a new domestic terrorism bill, and truthfully, we don't. Um, and we could have a whole nother conversation about that. You know, but what, <laughs> maybe we will. I think maybe we should. But go <laughs> ahead. I think this would be fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I don't, don't think people sort of uh, understand is that, you know, the Department of Justice actually has a set of priorities, um, an internal set of guidelines. And under those guidelines, terrorism investigations are the DOJ and FBI number one priority, which means that those investigations are well-resourced. It's, a, it's an important priority. Um, they track data relating to those crimes. They're constantly trying to explore the impact of those crimes. Um, and they often look at them in aggregate. So they're not just looking at each individual case. They're drawing connections you know, between all of them. Juxtapose that to civil rights violations 
which include hate crimes, which is number five of eight on the DOJ list. And that's one of the reasons that the Department of Justice doesn't actually devote the resources they need and they should to civil rights violations, to hate crimes. And we actually don't have governmental studies showing what we already know, which is that hate violence communities hate violence impacts communities at large, which is that, you know, the the greatest threat facing this country, you know, statistically is actually white supremacists. It's not Muslims. It's not immigrants. It's not refugees. Um, You know, and I also think it's important to just be explicit about what's happening. Um, Again, I I think we have made a little bit of progress insofar as people are talking about white supremacy in a way that they weren't before. Um, Presidential candidates, maybe just political, But they're finally telling, you know, saying that Donald Trump is a racist. I mean, I wish people had said this two years ago. I mean, I still remember Cory Booker being asked, you know, is Donald Trump a racist? And he said, you know, I don't know what's in his soul. It's like, what more can the guy do to tell you that he's a racist um, and that he, you know, uh, subscribes to to white nationalism, white supremacy? And so I think it's also just really important to be explicit about what's happening in this moment, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who's helping leading, leading this charge. Um, you know, and who's impacted. So our other guest on this show is Ibram X. Kendi, and he talks a lot. I mean, his whole the whole book is about kind of reclaiming the word racist as a descriptive term, a useful descriptive term, and not a pejorative. You're not calling someone an asshole when you call them a racist. I mean, that person may also be an asshole, right? <laughs> but and in fact, we, we maybe they usually are. But you, what you're saying is you are engaging in racism when you call someone a racist, you know, and you're supporting policies that exacerbate racial injustice. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know how successful this his campaign will be in reclaiming that word, but it would make the lives of people who want to to work in anti-racism much easier to be able to talk about this stuff. You know, if nothing else, because you're right, like the national struggle we had about whether or not to use the word racist just fucking drives me crazy. Like, you know, I mean, I mean, that's basic. I mean, it's basic that Donald Trump is a racist. Right. I mean, it's just so obvious. Well, I actually liked the answer. I think it was Andrew Gillum that, you know, I don't know if he's racist, but racists think he's a racist, which is also a good answer. Yeah. You know, like. And, and and you could also say he's I know he's he's not not a racist, like whatever, like he he supports racist policies. Like that's also the, the underlying thing. And also and people who don't think of themselves as racist support racist policies. Like I'm actually I want to kind of return back to the everyday racism and everyday bigotry. And I'm thinking about even like a never Trump conservative who says I want restrictive immigration laws that, uh, you know, don't, um, that prioritize people with high skills, right? Right. That's racist. Like, it is. You may not be a Trump fan, but in thinking about immigration in that way, you are supporting a racist policy. Absolutely, right? And so, you know, racism isn't just taking to the streets of Charlottesville, right, and yelling profanities about black mm-hmm. folks and saying Jews do not belong, right? I, You know, I talk about this, you know, in, in the book. I say, you know, I give an example. It's opposing the construction of a mosque because their beliefs yeah. do not belong in this town. Um, it's pulling children from a school because you don't want them talking to immigrant children, 
Um, it's the microaggressions and invisible othering where some get sympathy and understanding, but others get disdain and intolerance. And so if I venture to say, if the people who were impacted by that policy that the never Trumper supports were majoritarian white people who look like him, he'd probably feel a little differently. But because the people <laughs> who are impacted, the people who have much to lose, don't look like him or her or them, he's far more likely and, and, and far more open to saying, oh, I don't support it. And that's the way it goes. Yeah. And so I do think we need to reclaim the word um, racism. And I think one of the ways that we can start is by just being very clear that Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. Steve Miller— uh, Mitch McConnell. I mean, these people are racist. I mean, this is what they do time and again. They have racist beliefs. Um, their policies are racist. Um, and they coddle and court um, some of the worst racists, you know, in this country. We touched on something I wanted to circle back to, which is gun control and gun violence as an aspect of hate crime. And I want to say two things. One, there's a really great organization in Minneapolis where um, Muslim women and Jewish women have banded together to work on preventing gun violence, uh, seeing that their communities are the ones impacted yep. often by hate crimes. Yep. And I interviewed them on the show, the two leaders of this of this group on the show, and one of the lasting lessons I got from that was their insistence that everyone wants them t- to talk about how do they deal with each other in terms of like, you know, uh, Muslim beliefs about Jews and Jewish beliefs about Muslims. Like, how do you continue to work together? And their pushback is like, we just do. And that's our business to deal with that. Like, let's talk about gun violence. And I felt that's so powerful. Like, because there's a white, I think there's a white interest in figuring out if I can divide these two people, not me personally, but tell me about your divisions, you know? And they just refuse to do that. And I go back, everyone should go back and listen to that interview. And the other thing I wanted to say is, and I've been thinking about this a lot as... We see that the NRA, even hobbled as it is by terrible scandal and financial ruination, still has so much power, right? Or seems to. Uh, you know, Trump seems to have gone back on his even very minor endorsement of some kind of uh, sensible gun control. I've been thinking, you know, I think that I don't, I'm, I cannot be the first person to to say this, but our love affair with guns is fundamentally racist in some way. That our country's inability to pass any kind of meaningful gun control has some relationship to white supremacy. And I, what, you're the first person I'm bouncing this off of. Like, does that scan for you? Yes, I completely agree with you, right? And we've seen this time and again, right? That people love to say, oh, you know what? You should carry a gun to uh, uh, defend yourself. But when black folks carry guns, they're gunned down. They're gunned down by police. They're gunned down by um, uh, everyday people. And so we've seen that the right to actually carry and bear arms really only applies to a certain segment of the population, most often white men. On top of that, one of the reasons that I think we as a society are, are, are tolerate 
the, the degree of gun violence that we have is because often the people who are impacted are vulnerable communities, right? And so I, I absolutely think that's the case. And I also think, I mean, this is the other thing that we've noticed and we're studying, and this is the other sort of disruption that we can make, is that increasingly, you know, researchers have actually found that white supremacists, gun-toting white supremacists, because they're often sort of, you know, hand-in-hand, uh, uh, hand, are now actively trying to join police departments, are now actively trying uh, 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 to just figure out a way that they can exercise that, for, that, that force in uniform. Um, and so I do think that in many ways it's, it's, it's fair to describe it as a racist policy um, that in many ways is sort of administered um, by racists. Um, you know, and the other point that you made specifically regarding the, the two young women in, um, in Minneapolis, I think it's an important one. And there are a couple of ideas that come to mind, you know, specifically with sick Americans. You know, sick Americans in many ways are targeted by hate violence. And I'm a sick American. I realize people can't see me. Um, and so I'm a sick American and that, that's my faith. <laughs> um, and so sick Americans are often targeted because we just look different and we're perceived to be the other. And sometimes we are targeted because we may be mistaken for Muslims. But Sikhs have never gone out and said, hey, listen, right, uh, we're not Muslim, leave us alone, right? That The message that we've always tried to pe preach from the days after 9-11 to the present day is that we are in this collective fight together because that's what the other side tries to do. They try to divide us, um, just like they tried to divide these two young women in Minneapolis. And the last point I'll make is, you know, it, it, it relates to this, you know, somewhat, you know, for a long time, I was asked to be part, because I'm a sick American, to be part of these interfaith conversations where I felt like we'd literally go in a circle and someone would say they're Muslim and I'd say I'm sick and someone would say they're Jewish and it would be like this kumbaya moment. And it's like, you know what? I'm tired of the interfaith conversations. I'm tired of saying, you know what? Um, uh, here's who I am. Like, we need to have conversations about white supremacy. We need to have a conversation about how to be an anti-racist. We've graduated from these interfaith discussions, and we need to move forward with these deeper conversations now about what's happening in this moment, what is white supremacy, and how can everyone take on their own, you know, biases, privileges, uh, and be an anti-racist. And maybe that's the perfect segue to the next guest. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on, and we shall talk further. I, I think I would love to be able to give the people that listen to this show good ideas about the movement from as I think I'm about to talk about with Ibram Kendi, the movement from demonstration to protest, uh, which he kind of makes, um, you know, the point that, like, we're pretty good at demonstrations here in this country. Like, well, don't do that, you know, yep. that we're not we don't do as much protesting and we don't do as much organizing. And I feel like we are perhaps pr approaching a tipping point. There's a lot of well-meaning white Americans who did take to the streets in the past couple of years to protest uh, Trump's election, to protest gun violence. Maybe there's a next step for us to take. Absolutely. And it has to do more with being of service and not just showing up with our signs. Absolutely. So I hope you'll guide us in that a little. That's the work I do. Do you want me to share more now or you want me to invite <laughs> me back and we'll do it again? <laughs> I'm going to invite you back and we'll do it again. Maybe we'll have like a workshop. That sounds great. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on, Marie. You ever buy something online only to find out later you missed a discount? 
you don't have to do that anymore with Honey. Honey is a free browser add-on that finds the best deals online. The app magically auto-applies the best deals that are available to your cart at checkout. We used to call this, when I worked in the dot-com boom, auto-magically. Honey finds discounts and coupons from across 37,000 sites. Amazon, Sephora, Best Buy, Nordstrom, and more. I will tell you that when I logged on to start my Honey account and saw Nordstrom and Sephora on there, I was like, okay. I am in. And in fact, um, I discovered some free shipping deals on but for both of those places that I didn't know before. And Nordstrom had a shoe deal and shoes are a weakness. Even though I don't wear high heels anymore, somehow I've transferred my high heel obsession to sneakers, which are better for my feet, but still kind of tough on the wallet, which is good that I can find discounts for them. Or I don't have to find the discounts. Honey finds the discounts. Honey has saved its 10 million members, an average of $28.61. There is no reason not to try it. It is free to use, easy to install, and just two clicks. So shop with confidence. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash friends. That's joinhoney.com slash friends. Honey, the smart shopping assistant that saves you time and money when you are shopping online. Ibram, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be on the show. I'm really excited to talk about this book. It it hits at the core of what I want to be doing. I think we should start with some very basic definitions, which is one of the ways you kind of put some handholds on the book. I really appreciate that in the book. You open every chapter with definitions. So let's start with maybe the most important one. What is an anti-racist? An anti-racist is is someone who is supporting anti-racist policies with their action uh, or expressing an anti-racist idea. And and anti-racist policies are are policies that lead to racial equity. And anti-racist ideas suggest that there's nothing wrong or even right, superior or inferior, better or worse, with any of the racial groups. And it's important to kind of put that out there because I think it's a term that people may not be familiar with because in our popular dialogue, the centered dialogue of American culture, the largely white dialogue, when people think of the opposite of racist, they think not racist. But you very strongly want to posit that that is not what is the opposite of racist. Anti-racist is the opposite of racist. And that not racist is, is not only just, I mean, do you think there is such a thing as being not racist? Or is that even kind of a meaningless term? I actually think it's a meaningless term. And as I've sort of studied the history of of racism, but even more specifically the history of racist, I've found people essentially saying, I am not racist. And I've found that when I've really sought to understand the term not racist, when I've really figured out, trying to figure out its meaning, I kept going back to essentially people denying their own racism, essentially it being a a reflective sort of defensive response to someone being charged as racist, because that's typically how it's used in our common usage. Someone says such and such is, is a racist, and their response is, I'm not racist. No matter what they say, no matter what policies they support, no matter what damage they have done, the reflexive, the reflect, you know, it's almost like intuitively the way they respond is, I'm not racist. And 
And, and I think that the term racist itself has a very clear meaning. The term anti-racist has a very clear meaning. And I'm still looking for the meaning of not racist other than denying one's own racism. I love that point. I also love the way that it it disentangles racist and racism from, quote unquote, what someone has in his heart, right? Uh, Or it doesn't untangle it, but it at least points out that what someone has in his or her heart is not as important as the policies that person supports, and that one can be racist and do and say racist things and support racist policies without hating necessarily, right? I, 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 that's at least what I, I, I feel like I got from your book. Yeah, there are racists who are in relationships with people of other races who they think are inferior. There are people who have children of, of races, of people who they think there's something wrong with that race. There are people who in friendships with people who they think need to be civilized. And and so this idea that a that a racist is is someone who hates the racial group that they are demeaning, that a racist is a bad person, that a racist is a Ku Klux Klan member, is just simply false. And there are people who reject the idea that Latinx people are invading this country, which is obviously a racist idea, but then they view their own ideas that we need to essentially civilize these people as, quote, not racist ideas, um, mm-hmm. that we need to bring these people in and, and teach them English and teach them civilization and culture. They view that as not racist ideas, and I'm saying those are racist ideas too. I think one of the most powerful things in your book, the thing that makes it possible for you to, for your argument to land so well, at least with me, is that you go ahead and and not just say we need to reclaim the word racism and be okay with calling other people racist, but you fess up and name and claim your own racism. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the heartbeat of, of racism has long been denial, and the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession, is confessing the ways in which we are racist, is confessing that we are racist, is saying and expressing those racist ideas that we have consumed, that we have expressed, is confessing those racist policies and policymakers that we've supported, because that's the first step in no longer doing that, right? That's the first step in no longer Mm -hmm. thinking and believing and expressing those ideas and supporting those policies. And while a racist says, no matter what, I'm not racist, what an anti-racist will say is, okay, let me take the definition of a racist idea, apply it to that idea I just said, and then say, you know what? That idea was racist, and I'm going to stop saying it. And I'm going to strive to be anti-racist. Throughout your book, I kept thinking of a metaphor that we talk about on this show sometimes, which is um, white supremacy as an addiction. Yeah. And the specific way I thought about it was I believe in the very beginning of your book, you you talk about how the work of the anti-racist is never done. And that one is constantly in 
kind of the state of becoming an anti-racist, that you can't kind of just be an anti-racist. It has to, you have to be doing things. You have to be actively fighting racism to be an anti-racist. And I'm in recovery, and it really made me think of how in the rooms we call ourselves recovering and not recovered. And I think that that's a really helpful, I mean, for me, that's a helpful frame, that metaphor. But I also really like thinking of, I I wonder if it it, it is helpful for people who might be scared of the word racism to to know that it it is not like, like you were saying, it is not a pejorative. It is not a bad person. It is a thing that you might have believed, an action that you might have taken. And the way to counter that is to is more action is in the state of becoming something else. Does Pers- that am I yes. reading you right? I, I think you're reading it perfectly. <laughs> I mean, I just like an addiction, right? Uh, or even a personality, um, uh, even a, a personality characteristic that we recognize um, we want to change, the first step is acknowledging it, right? Is acknowledging the way in which Mm -hmm. we're addicted to something or even someone. And how, and, and, and I think that we, if we literally were raised to be a particular way, if we literally have a personality characteristic, if we literally are addicted to something, this idea that one day we can just wake up and never have to sort of strive against that and never have to struggle against that is just is 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 just not recognizing the reality of the way this stuff works and it's the same thing with with racism we were raised to be racist and if you're an american then chances are you were raised to be racist it, it, once you decide that you want to, to be anti-racist, you literally have to strive each day. I, you know, am striving each day to be anti-racist. I don't consider myself, I don't, I would never say I became or become um, an anti-racist and, and that I never sort of think up or express racist ideas or I never um, think up or support a policy that, that is racist. No, I still do to this day. And so therefore, every day I, I strive to be different. And as I mentioned before, I think it's a really powerful thing to have you, the author, as a way of you know, walking the walk, go through and talk about the ways that you've engaged in different kinds of, uh, how would be the general term? Because the book is also really devoted to intersectionality. So you talk about um, being uh, sexist, um, uh, being classist. You talk about all these other ways that that other kinds of hierarchies intersect with racism. And you go through and sort of tell your story of realizing these different things. I guess I'm asking two questions. One is, what is the general category here <laughs> that would cover all of that? If there is such a thing, I have no idea. And because I, I, I was going to say bigotry. Yeah. Well. Well, actually, I mean, I would say bigotry in terms of in certain types of ways, but but the reason why I I'm saying the general category, at least the the story that I specifically tell in this book, is racism, is because mm-hmm. when if I think that there's something wrong with black women in a very specific way. In other words, I think that black women are just angry. 
but I don't think white women are angry and I don't think women are angry, then that is a specific idea that I have about a specific racial group um, that is racist. And or if I sort of have my sexist ideas and I believe that women are weak and I also believe a ra- the racist idea that the superior woman is the white woman, then when those ideas intersect, I'm going to look at what makes white women superior is that they are weak, and what makes black women inferior to white women is that they are strong like men. And so what's happening mm-hmm. here is this sort of intersection of sexist and racist ideas that I think you can classify as racist or sexist ideas, um, which then necessitates the individual to not only challenge their own um, racism, but other forms of bigotry that they've been raised in. Because in order to truly see the racial groups as equal, all of the racial groups, to see black men as equal to white um, men to see black men as equal to, to to black women, to see black women as equal to white women, in order to see all those racial groups as equal, as equals, I have to essentially not harbor any forms of bigotry. The other things I feel like I, I got from the book, and, and I think you reiterated it really well, and again, I just want to make sure I'm understanding, because this was, some of the stuff was, I've thought of myself as being fairly well-read in this area. And still, some of your ideas really made me think. And by the way, I I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And one of the things that I have still mulling over is how just how intertwined our different forms of bigotry are. Like one of the arguments that you you seem to make is that you kind of can't separate, you cannot separate them. There's no way to be just sexist and not racist. There's no way to be just classist, for instance, and maybe not sexist. Like all of these forms of hierarchy and bigotry feed on each other and like assist each other, then built are built on each other. Then, and if we're going to undo one, we kind of have to, we're, we're going to have to take on all of them. Without question. That's why I said that you can't truly be anti-racist if you're not truly a feminist. And you, in it, you can't even really truly be a feminist if you're not anti-racist. Because in both ways, right, if you're, for instance, imagining that, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, the men are equal in different racial groups, you're only talking about half of these Races, right? You're leaving out another half. And even mm-hmm. as it relates to sort of uh, sexual orientation and and race, you, you know, I, 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 to mention another way in which these, these ideas deeply intersect is, you know, homophobic ideas suggest that, that queer people are more hypersexual. And, and racist ideas suggest that Black people are more hypersexual than, let's say, white people. Well, those two ideas intersect to make this case that black queer people are more hypersexual than white queer people and black heterosexuals and white heterosexuals. And and so you can't, so you have people right now who believe that black 
queer people are more hypersexual than white queer people. You have white queer people who believe that. You have black queer people who believe that, let alone heterosexual people. And so there's no way in which you can truly sort of fight homophobia without fighting racism. And you can't really fight racism without fighting homophobia. And I, and I think that that's one of the sort of messages I was trying to sort of make the case about, because what most people want to do is they just want to talk about race and not talk about how it's deeply intertwined with these other bigotries. I keep referring to how you use your own story as a way to talk about these different isms. And I have not yet asked you some of the more naughty questions. I think there's a part of me that's hesitant to do it. Oh, please do. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that really challenged me uh, in reading your book is that you do take on what you call the powerless defense, the idea that black people can't be racist because they don't have power. And that is the thing that I was, as as a baby liberal, that was what I was taught. You know, that there is a difference between discrimination and racism and that you that black people can't be racist because of the power differential. And you talk about the history of even that way of thinking and you deconstruct it. Could you walk us through that? Sure, I'll try. I mean, I think it takes a whole chapter, which is why. <laughs> it, would, it does. You're right. Like people should just read the book. But I, I'm going to just give a preview. Sure. About so that? I think that. You you mentioned the power differential, and I would agree that there is a power differential, for instance, between the racial groups, but the argument is not that there is a power differential. The argument is that black people have no power, which is a different sort of statement. Mm. And and to make the case that, that black people have no power is to make the case that black people do not have the power to resist. And to say that black people don't have the power to resist is effectively to make black people into slaves. And black people have been using the power to resist even during slavery, which is why we don't call black people slaves. We tend to call them enslaved, demonstrating that even within slavery, they were using their power to resist. But some black people over the, over the course of history have not used their power to resist. And some black people have not used their power to resist because they thought the problem was not racism, but it was black people. That they had basically swallowed the Kool-Aid. They had internalized notions of anti-blackness. They have been led to believe that black people should be enslaved, that black people should be segregated into the poorer neighborhoods, that black people should be incarcerated by the millions because there's something wrong with black people. And it makes sense when you're told as a black person from the time you start understanding complex ideas that there's something wrong with you, it's hard for some people to not consume those ideas. But what I'm getting at is those that consumption of racist ideas actually does something. It saps people of their power to resist. And then finally, as you know, as I talk about in the chapter, particularly in our time where you have a black Supreme Court justice who, if it was anti-racist, you've had a, you would have had a series of different Supreme Court decisions that would have actually probably led to the current president not being president. Potentially, George W. Bush wouldn't have been president, let alone all of the attacks um, on other forms of anti-racist policies in housing and, and, and in education would not have happened if he would have sided with, with anti-racist judges. You've had a series of—you have 
350 million, I'm sorry, 350,000 black millionaire families in this country to say they have no economic power, let alone all of the black elected officials and black cops and black commanders to say they have no economic power. I mean, um, to say they have no power is just not reality. Now, clearly, black people have far and away less power than other people in this country, than white people in this country. But to say that black people have no power and no one has the power to shape policy, no one has the power to say, you know what, I'm in a policy managing position, but I'm not going to execute this racist policy because I'm being an anti-racist. To say no black people have the power to resist is just simply not true. And you apply the same analysis to the possibility that Black people can be racist, have racist ideas about white people, right? Yeah. And and I think that what I ultimately argue is that when Black people, and I also, as you know, it's, it's a very sort of complex thing because I talk about how yeah. when you are subjected to white racism constantly— and it's it's not often that you see an, a white anti-racist or do you experience a white anti-racist. It's hard for you not to think <laughs> that there is something wrong fundamentally with white people. Yeah, I have, I have trouble with it, by the way. Like, I fess up to that myself. I have trouble believing that there's not something wrong with white people. I mean, we seem to have fucked things up pretty well, <laughs> but that's a joke. But it's also a problem, right? Like that's actually that way of thinking is actually what you're talking because, about. Because yeah, what happens is if you think that the problem is white people, then you're going to think the problem is all the white people around you. In other words, working class white people, poor white people, middle income white people, they're just as um much as the problem as someone like Donald Trump, as someone in a position of power as someone who's actually mass manipulating white people into thinking that the problem is people of color as opposed to people like him. And and so you're going to spend your time challenging everyday white people who actually don't have as much power as those in positions of power. And by challenging everyday white people, viewing them as the fundamental problem, you take your focus off of racist power. And in taking our focus off of racist power, we are allowing racist power to persist. And in allowing racist power to persist, we are allowing racist policies to persist, which ultimately harm Black people, which ultimately harm people of color. So ultimately, that's why I end up arguing for Black people that hating white people ends up hating Black people. I am. I have so many questions. <laughs> Because the other thing that I found really helpfully revelatory was something, it relates to something you mentioned about if you think that the problem is white people, then you kind of fight all white people equally, including rich white people and poor white people. And you get into class in the book and capitalism as part of racism. And I think there, you know, it's not a totally foreign idea to people who who think about this stuff fairly regularly that capitalism and racism are intertwined, but you really go after it. And 
use anti-capitalist as one of the other frames in addition to being like anti-sexist, um, uh, anti-homophobic, all of those things, that to be anti-racist has to include some kind of pushback against capitalism. Yeah, and I think just like we, in, in many ways as a society, are debating and not being honest about what a racist is and what racism really is, so too are people debating and not being honest about what capitalism um, is or what a capitalist is. And so that then allows people to imagine that capitalism is, is simply, you know, operating for a profit. Capitalism is simply a, a you know, a, a system with markets and supply and demanding that that's capitalism. And, and that's just blatantly false. That, that does not sort of take into account the material reality of capitalism. And, and one of those material realities of, of capitalism is that it has historically been intertwined with racism. And that's why I talk about capitalism and, and racism as the conjoined twins. Um, obviously, conjoined twins, the same body, different faces, different personalities. And, and when you look at the history of racism, you can't separate it from the history of capitalism. And when you look at the history of capitalism, you can't separate it from the history of racism. Capitalism essentially emerged through slave trade, slavery, and colonialism. <laughs> when you think of colonialism, the slave trade and slavery, these were racist systems. These were racist structures that fundamentally operated on racist policies and racist ideas. And, and then when you look at the effects of both racism and capitalism, the conjoined twins, now you can then begin to understand how and why you not only have poverty, for instance, in the United States, but you also have black people who are disproportionately, let's say, poor. That you not only have poverty around the mm -hmm. world, but now you can begin to understand why African, sub-Saharan African nations are disproportionately poor. While, why forecasters are estimating that 90% of the extremely poor population by 2030 will be living in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Like when you, so when you think about poverty, you can't separate poverty from race and wealth from race, just like you can't separate racism from capitalism. So when I was reading that chapter and thinking about sort of my own developing feelings having to do with capitalism, which I will say, by the way, the space to call oneself anti-capitalist, I think, is really cool. Um, to For those of us who are, let's say, socialist curious, <laughs> can't quite go all the way there. So one of the reasons why I used the term anti-capitalist was specifically because, like, when we support things like unions, we're called anti-capitalist. <laughs> when, we, when we support yeah. things like, uh, you know, taxing the super rich, we're called anti-capitalist. And, and so that's the irony is that, you know, they're showing us what capitalism is. Yeah, yeah. And so when I was thinking about, so why, what does it mean to be, just thinking for myself, what does it mean to be anti-capitalist? Like, what are my, what are my problems here? And um, something that was like, I was thinking about the book and the other kinds of bigotry you talked about. And I'm thinking of one of these things is not like the other cap. Like, I understand what homophobia is. I understand what sexism is. How is capitalism like homophobia? How is capitalism like sexism? They seem like different categories of thing, right? 
Like, especially for those of us indoctrinated in American thinking, which is the capitalism equals markets, right? So I know there's more to it than that. And what I what I kind of came to was that I think that to be an anti-capitalist is not to be anti-market. It is to be, capitalism is a system of belief in this country, at least, maybe worldwide, that there's a, it's not necessarily about protecting markets. There's a, there's like so much else built into it, right? Like it's protecting the rich, not the market. It's protecting the ability to um, destroy the environment, not markets. Markets could exist in a world where there were protections for the environment, right? You don't have to reject markets necessarily. Well, there's, I guess, some theories that you would have to reject markets. But <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to go back to your idea that they're showing us what, what capitalism is and what anti-capitalism is, that it's not about wanting people to embrace some other system of economics. It's about the things that capitalism protects, maybe. That's where I got to. I'm kind of like, I feel like where I'm in your class. <laughs> I actually do feel like you're my professor because <laughs> I want to make sure that I got the reading right. But I, I do think that's what you're talking about. Although you also point out that Elizabeth Warren, who is, you know, a favorite of some of us who have our our capitalist questioning. She keeps calling herself a capitalist. I mean, I like Elizabeth Warren, too. <laughs> yeah. No, she's she's cool. I'd like to her to be my professor, too. But she keeps calling herself a capitalist, and yet she calls out the things that we're talking about as being a problem with capitalism. And you point out that if she if she's able to follow through with what she wants, we're, we're not going to have a thing that looks like what people say capitalism is. Yeah, and, you know, I think that First and foremost, as it relates to markets, markets existed before the rise of capitalism. And so it's, you know, and that's mm -hmm. one of the things that when people think of economy, they think of capitalism. <laughs> when they think of markets or profit, they just think of capitalism. And, and we just have to remember that capitalism is a new human phenomenon. It's, it's really, even you talk about the most conservative um, sort of capitalist thinkers and historians, they will say, oh, yeah, this really emerged in the long 15th century. I mean, I'm sorry, the long 16th century. They will say this is, yes, a new sort of phenomenon. They're not going to say that all of the places where markets existed or supplying and demanding or trading existed, that that was capitalism. Now, and so I think that it's critical for us to sort of remember that and, and in, you know, as it relates to those who obviously are challenging many of the policies and ideas, because I think capitalism is a system of policies and ideas. And I do think uh, capitalist policies benefit the rich, benefit the wealthy, benefit mm -hmm. the white people who are wealthy. And, and so I think mm -hmm. that—and then the ideas justify that, right? Um, and, and I think we can't really separate the ideas from the policies and, and how, you know, they sort of continuously justify each other. Like an idea like, you know what, if we if we provide tax cuts for the rich, that's going to generate ec ec economic growth. That is an idea. It's been proven yet again to be false, <laughs> but it's an idea <laughs> that was created to justify the policy, which is precisely what happens with racism. Ideas are created to justify the policy. And I know this is maybe, this, I'm kind of splitting a hair, but 
It's a belief. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm keep coming around to the idea that capitalism is a belief system. It's a religion. It's like, that's, that's the problem, right? It's not, it, you're right. It's not like markets. It's not supply and demand. Like the, we've, we've, we've been taught that that's what capitalism is, but capitalism is actually about allowing, to me, what it seems like what we're talking about when I read your book, it's allowing these systems to exist, these predatory systems to exist and justifying it in the name of markets, you know? And I, I want to say explicitly something that you, you've you been mentioning, which is the connection between racism and capitalism and, and explicitly slavery. And people, if they have not read the 1619 Project, go and read the 1619 Project in the New York Times. Um, but Racism kind of had to be invented in order to support slavery, right? The policy of racism is something that had to be—race had to be invented. I think that's something that not enough people realize, that it, it, it is an invention in or, that, that had to happen in order to support this evil profit system, right? You couldn't keep having slaves unless you invented race. Yeah, because you had to justify— why you were exclusively enslaving, I should say, slave trading and enslaving this group of people. And and the reason why is because this group of people, even though they come from different nations, different ethnicities, different neighborhoods, different skin colors, different everything. No, this is one people, one African people, a people worthy of enslavement, while white people are one people, a people worthy of being free. And that's just in it. Stamped from the beginning, you might say, if I can reference another work of yours. And when you start from from that premise, no wonder we get to a point where it's all we've just grown up with all of these things being normalized. Capitalism is normal, white supremacy is normal, sexism is normal, patriarchy is normal. Because the system could not survive without us allowing those things to continue. And I think something that I got from your book that's a real challenge is maybe the word allowing there, which gets back to the idea of always in the process of becoming an anti-racist, that there really is no neutral position in all this. There is, That you are either supporting all of it or you're fighting against it, but you cannot just be in the system. Yeah, there's there is no neutrality, unfortunately, um, and uh, <laughs> and and it, it, I mean it makes sense because if if you have, for instance, mass incarceration today, you have people being living and you know having to be forced to live in what people have called concentration camps along the southern border. If you have people being uh, killed by police because of the color of their their skin. If you have uh, growing a growing racial wealth gap, if you have all these health disparities, that is the normality of this country. If you have people being systematically uh, deprived of the ability to vote, voter suppression, if you do nothing in the face of that, then what happens? It continues. And the people who are behind, for instance, voter suppression policies, and they're they're instituting these policies so that they, as the politician, can pick the voters as opposed to the other way around. So they can maintain office 
so they can essentially uh, get elected. If if we do nothing in the face of those policies, then what's going to happen? They're going to continue. And, and 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 one of the ironies, right, mm-hmm. is that if current, for instance, currently because of voter suppression, and the suppression has largely targeted people of color. Um, and to a certain extent, young people and even senior citizens. And those people who— Disabled people yeah, as disabled well. Disabled people. If, if, if those persons who are in positions of power now have the ability and the power to suppress votes, and let's say if suburban white women, to give an example, started to demonstrate— <laughs> that they were going to no longer support those people in positions of power, and they had the ability and the power to suppress votes, they would figure out a way to suppress their votes too. It just so happened, what, the better part of this country's history, women couldn't vote, people who didn't own property couldn't vote. And and so it, it wouldn't seem unnatural to this country's history that that people could not vote, that women could not vote, that poor people couldn't vote. And And so I think that we should sort of recognize the ways in which people, that that is the normality, and it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse, especially when you have a federal government that refuses to prosecute, to condemn, to provide the resources to stop even Russians from hacking the election. And instead, they want to bring Russia into the G7 as Trump as it has been reported today. I mean, this is the America that we have, and if we do nothing in the face of it, by the time these forces of power get finished, the America we, we know, won't, know will no longer exist. I refuse to end on that note. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I mean, this book is, is, is sort of, winds up being, I think, surprisingly intimate. I almost feel like there's a spoiler I don't want to give away. Um, But one of the things you talk about a lot, especially towards the end of the book, is despite the fact that you see no reason to hope, you continue to take action. And that's kind of where I'd like at least to sort of give some focus. Because, so the first part of the show, I interviewed Arjun Sethi, who does um, work documenting hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And the news there is bad, yeah. As, yeah. as I'm sure you know. But he, for instance, talks a lot about the resilience of the communities that he covers. And we talked about how white people can do more um, to center those communities and to give them resources rather than just decrying shit, you know. Um, and it, it, the book, you sort of get to a place where you talk about your own decision to be more actively anti-racist, to actively undertake this journey, this this movement. You want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, it, it seems important to get to the action piece yeah. and how that even applies. You're not just writing this book. That is not the only thing you are doing. Yeah, so you want me to talk about what happens at the end? <laughs> so maybe we'll just say spoiler alert <laughs> for those who who are planning on reading the book. You know, this has been enough of a discussion and you can go 
go go away. But for those of us who who have read the book, how about that? Let's continue as though this part of the discussion is only for people who have already read it. Yeah, talk about it. Well, yeah, I mean, the sort of end of, end, the last two chapters in particular sort of talk about having to sort of caretake um, my wife at the time who, who had breast cancer. And while I was sort of caretaking of her, I was um, writing my last book, Stamped from the Beginning, which was a history of racist ideas, which, of course, the book ended up being 500 pages, but I probably had to consume literally tens of thousands of, of, of of, of pages of, of racist ideas and to sort of make sense of them. It was almost like I was surrounded by all these trash bags because it was so toxic. What I sort of had to take in, at the same time, I didn't really want to think about my own sort of physical and even emotional health at all because, of course, I was caretaking someone who was ailing and who had breast cancer. And, of course, she was the focus. Um, and... Fortunately, she recovered um, from the breast cancer and, and survived, um, and survived it, and is surviving it. And and but a few years later, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, and so the book really ends on um, on sort of how I was able to um, navigate uh, stage four colon cancer. At the same time, I'm sort of trying to sort of navigate. Uh, racism. And ultimately, I begin to realize that in order for me to fight this this deadly disease, which uh, 88% of people die uh, in five years, I had to first and foremost stop denying that I had it, but um, that I had to, of course, attack it and allow doctors to treat it. And the way we treat I should say the way doctors normally treat stage four colon cancer is a way that we can actually treat stage four racism or metastatic racism. And, and you know, spoiler alert, the United States has metastatic racism and has had <laughs> r- this racism really since its founding. Yeah. And, and we yeah. should be seeing the ways in which the symptoms of that racism, we should be seeing those effects and how harmful they are to the country and to the people. Um, you know, we see those on a daily basis. And, you know, if obviously we should be not responding to those symptoms, but responding to the tumor cells themselves, the the racial inequities, the racist policies. And, and the way we could do that is essentially do a local treatment, which is essentially to go in and surgically remove racist policies that will effectively, in the way we surgically remove tumors, and then do a systemic treatment, which is essentially to flood the body of America with anti-racist policies that will kill undetectable um, racial inequities um, and obviously detectable ones, and which will then prevent a reoccurrence, which can then essentially allow the body to heal, allow the body to be one. And But then we wouldn't stop there, as, as doctors do not stop there, especially when somebody has had metastatic cancer. And they, as, as doctors are doing currently with me right now, they, they closely monitor the body to make sure there's not a reoccurrence. 
I think there might be an even more local metaphor there with how you approached cancer and how you approached the book and how you approached yourself, mm-hmm. which has to do with the naming and claiming and rooting out the cancer in our own bodies, our yeah. own racism, right? Like, I have to do that. To, cancer, racism is a cancer in my body, mine. Yeah. yeah. I have to look at what I have said and done and what I have supported. Sexist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, all of that. Because all of that um, cancer feeds on each other, right? That's why it's metastatic, maybe. And I have to look at those things in myself and root them out and flood, and then continually flood my body with anti-racism ideas. Like, I can't just... I can't just do surgery on other people, right? Yeah. And I can't just do surgery on America. Like, it really is my body first. Yeah, and, and typically we don't want to do that because it's painful. Yeah. And it is extremely painful um, undergoing cancer treatment um, and undergoing chemotherapy, you know, having to deal with the pain from surgery. And just like it's extremely painful to look in the mirror and see a racist and to, to, to think back and take an accounting of our racist ideas, it's, it's extremely painful when we think of the racist policymakers and, and policies we've supported. It's extremely painful when we think about the harm that those ideas and, and, and policymakers and policies have done. But pain is necessary to healing. And, you know, when we have done the things that have been the hardest, that's when we were able to reconstruct ourselves to a better form of ourselves that I'm sure we're proud of today. I want to ask you something explicitly that I I, I think I've, I felt like I read between the lines in this section about how you had to deal with both cancer in your wife and in yourself, and you had to, you were also dealing with this polluted idea of racism. Do you think racism gave you cancer in some way? Like, I'm kind of joking, but also I wonder if they're, like, spiritually speaking, it must have been hard on your body also to just be surrounded by that all the time. So you know, as a, as a as a scholar and a scientist, uh, I don't necessarily have indisputable evidence um, that uh, racism, particularly the, my, the sort of study of of racism and some of its most horrific effects and, and ideas, gave me cancer. But you know, some things you can't empirically show or prove. Um, and I suspect that's one of the things that we we could never essentially prove. And and so certainly some people who are very close to me have suggested that. And and I certainly think that it's a it's a strong possibility. You know, I do know that it was very, very difficult and hard for me to caretake someone uh who I loved who was uh ailing from from cancer and anyone who's taking care of someone who was who was going through chemotherapy and, and, and surgery and fighting cancer, they know how hard that is, uh, especially if the person is extremely young in their early 30s who's continuously asking, why me? Um, and um, 
but really anyone, even if they're in their 80s and they felt they were going to live another 20 years, it's it's certainly harder um, for them too. And and so certainly that was extremely difficult while simultaneously, uh, you know, going through all of these toxic ideas. I suspect something that may have been the case. I mean, it, it explains it because it never, it didn't make sense mm-hmm. to my doctors. Like they were shocked <laughs> that someone so young, someone who was a vegan, someone who worked out, um, someone who had no risk factors could have such a stage four, you know, colon cancer. It, it didn't really make any sense. And, and typically when things don't make any sense, you know, we have to look for ways in which, in which above and uh, below and above sense. And, 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 you know, I think as we're talking, that's when we start thinking about spirit and spirituality and, and really the effects of trauma um, and, 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 and things of that sort. I wish we had another hour to talk. I want to circle back one more time to to action and hope. Because I was paraphrasing, but not not too much paraphrasing. I've now looked at it. It is the final paragraph of your book. Racism is one of the fastest spreading and most fatal cancers humanity has ever known. It is hard to find a place where its cancer cells are not dividing and multiplying. There is nothing I see in our world today, in our history, giving me hope that one day the anti-racists will win this fight, that one day the flag of anti-racism will fly over a world of equity. So that's the bad news. That's what you see. But I would like to let you kind of say what you followed that with. Sure. Would you like me to read it? (laughs) Sure. What gives me hope is a simple truism. Once we lose hope, we are guaranteed to lose. But if we ignore the odds and fight to create an anti-racist world, then we give humanity a chance to one day survive, a chance to live in communion, a chance to be forever free. And that's where at least I would like to end our conversation for today, even if the fight is not over. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. 